You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. While my father administered his meds to his dying lungs, I ran circles around the parking lot on the side of the prairie. I loved the man. I hated the man. I knew that he must love and hate me. I looked just like him. I wondered if that made it harder for the parent to separate from the child. It was impossible for him to look at me and not see his younger self. And for my father, youth meant virility, Johnny Cash, the ladies. I was stealing his virility. Consumed by disease, he bequeathed to me all the power that had once been his. But he could not respect me because I had not yet fathered a child. He could not pass anything on to me because I had not yet had a child, but he had to pass it on to me because he had lost all his power and my older brother was dead. I ran for fifteen minutes and came down from my rage. Back in the captain's chair of the RV, I steered the beast toward the road. My father said, It's good for you to get this venom out. I don't know how I can help you, but I'll do whatever I can. I admire you, son. I'd like to have a grown-up, adult relationship with you. I had problems with my own father. But in my 20s, I realized the problems weren't going to be solved, and it was time to be an adult and recognize that he'd done the best he could given the circumstances, and to hold on to my anger would do more harm than good. Anthony Swafford is the author of the memoir Jarhead and the novel Exit A. His new memoir is Hotels, Hospitals, and Jails. Thank you for joining me, Anthony. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Early in this book, you say that whenever a memoir is written, someone is going to get scorched. Right. (laughs) Given that, talk about creating your first memoir, Jarhead, and then going back and deciding to do that again. Well... I don't say this in the in the book, but I also believe that uh, the memoirist, him or herself, gets most scorched. That in in a well written memoir, the the writer bears the most, and in the end, you bear also bears the most responsibility for uh, shepherding the story into print, uh, for for spending the time, the hours, the days. Uh, the months and the years uh, inside of whatever world he's creating. And I felt scorched at the end of this book, but as well, some people who were close to me, uh, my father in particular, uh, might feel somewhat scorched by this book. Uh, it's clear that uh, you aim that fire at yourself. It's a, it's a really raw memoir. And one of the things you start out early on, we get a portrait of a man who's immersed in women and lies. And uh, as a reader, I'm thinking, here's a guy who's told us in the first page that he's writing a memoir and he's an unreliable narrator. Yeah, well, I was unreliable. I was an unreliable narrator uh, for the women, many of the women who were involved with me over a certain period of years. Uh, I'm reliable on the page. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, my reliability on the page w- was really a you know a result of the the dissipation that those lies and the evasions of those lies uh, sort of where it where it got me, which was in a raw 
a lone place. In fact, you know, a raw cabin alone on the side of the mountains in the Catskills. And um, I had to, you know, I'd scorched myself, uh, by the way, I'd been living. And I had to push my way through this book, which at the, at the time was probably about a third of the way written. It seems really like this was a very difficult writing process for you to to find this prose voice and to to look at yourself in such an unflinching manner. This is a, a, a it reads like a novel in many ways, like a first person novel, and I think it's very cunningly architected. So when you're telling a memoir, the inclination it seems might be to just spill it out in chronological order, which isn't how we get it here. So I like you to talk about. Uh, assembling these parts of your life into a whole narrative that reads very much like a, a one piece of writing. Well, you know, memoirs are, uh, by default, they, they must be episodic. Uh, there's always story. There's us- usually isn't plot unless it's, you know, a man running into a burning building and saving bodies. And I I did the same thing with Jarhead, and I got done with that. I'd finished that book, and and I wasn't totally sure how I'd done that. And and I'll admit that I was about halfway through this book, maybe actually about 90% through this book. I'd done the writing, and I still have really had no idea how I was going to construct the book. And I went back, and I didn't read Jarhead in its entirety, but I but I skimmed through it, and I, I tried to figure out just how I put that book together because I couldn't remember. It was It was 10 years in the past that I'd written that book. And it's really a matter for me in memoir of of theme and of creating uh, pressure on the prose and on the story and pressure for the reader. And you can do that in memoir by starting to tell a story and then moving obliquely into something else. And so my oblique movements here are away from uh, the RV with my father and away from some of my bad behavior with women and pivoting toward current-day veterans at the Bethesda Naval Hospital or a long week in Las Vegas or my brother's death, uh, looking at this long letter that my father wrote to me. Uh, that chapter is really, I think of it as a, a call and response that's going on in the in those pages. And and then moving back into the the sort of main ticking clock of the story, which is uh, these RV trips with my father. And I hope the reader is thinking, wow, is this old man going to die before this young man, his son, is able to forgive him for the past and move on himself? One of the things I think that is so interesting about this novel is this kind of uh, acerbic, um, tone that you take towards yourself. It's very raw and very intense. And I'd like you to just talk about recreating these moments in prose because it's one thing to live through these kind of events. And it's another thing to say, that's a story. And you are very much, I mean, when you tell a lie, that is no doubt a story. You're a master storyteller. Talk about deciding where the stories are. Yeah, I, I always talk about the 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 need for the memoirist, the the must, the thing a memoirist must do is recognize that there's a radical difference between the lived life and the narrative life of the book. 
And that comes through in structure, which we were just talking about, but also in you know what stories you're going to tell. And I like telling on myself. I just do. And it's fun. And I knew I knew many of these stories so well because I told them to friends over the years. And I do I do like the idea of a memoir as sort of pulling together a group of friends around a campfire or say a picnic bench and and convening the storytelling session. And that I feel like that's something great about the memoir because you have this thing built into calling it a memoir, and that is your reader opening the pages and knowing that it's a real person in this real life that they've lived, that they're about to get a really, you know, hopefully a beautiful, iconic insider's view on. And the prose for me comes, I think my prose is tightest when I know the story best. And, you know, some of these stories, they were fun to live, Uh, you know, escapades with women and um, sometimes with recreational drugs and with booze. And uh, those are fun stories to write, too, I have to admit. Like the, the easiest writing in the book is the writing about uh, my bad behavior. And I, you know, I'm not running for student council, so I don't really mind telling on myself. The stories in this book are so intense, self-reflective, that it, it strikes me that when you're writing them, you have to have a kind of a dichotomy for yourself. Because on one hand, the life you're describing is the life of a rock star or, you know, a, kind of a, a trashy kind of life. It's not a felicitous life of arts and letters. On the other hand, the man writing about that life is clearly a man of arts and letters. So that's a real interesting dichotomy to me because as I read this book, I think, well, here's this life of, you know, drugs and lies and dad in the RV and all this other stuff, which seems like a very down-home Americana. Yet you're a man who's been through the Iowa Writers Workshop, the whole educational process. That's a very interesting dichotomy. Well, I think there's a little bit of Sid Vicious in me and and a little bit of Robert Frost <laughs> or William Styron. And and those, uh, you know, Sid Vicious is always at war with those other versions of me. Um, and it's, again, you know, I, I like writing. Uh, I, I like um, telling stories. I like rendering real-life events into prose. And... Some of these stories I tell here, you know, they're not pretty stories, uh, but I feel like if if I treat them correctly in terms of the language that I use, then uh, I don't necessarily elevate the events, but I can elevate the experience for the reader. Now, that's a really interesting distinction to make, and I think that's important, and that's what I think you're very successful at, is to take events that are discomforting for us to read as readers. This isn't something, these aren't things we want to read about. I mean, we don't want to see our hero disgraced or disgrace himself, yet that's a large part of this book. So it's very interesting that you um, consider the reader's aspect of this. And as a writer, when you're, how much of this like pours off the tip of your pen and how much just is, comes out when, how much of this is gut-wrenching rewriting? 
It's mostly gut-wrenching rewriting. I think uh, you know, 95% of writing for me is rewriting. And I, I write really slowly. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people would disagree with that. It took me uh, more than two and a half years to write this book. And I was fur- furiously editing right up to the last moment. My my editor had to you know step on my chest and rip the manuscript out of my hands because he had to transmit it. I, I I was still tinkering with sentences and with phrases, and that's when I I love the revision process, especially once I've I've completed the, the an entire draft because then I I always know where I am in the book and and I can think of a sentence and I can know it's on page seventy five and I know exactly what's going around going on in the book around those pages. And what I'm trying to make is then totally clear to me. And that's the most satisfying portion of the writing process for me. When I'm on page 75 and I know I've got 200 plus more pages to go, it can be demoralizing and even demeaning, especially writing a memoir to um, you know, be aware at least in the memoirs that I've written, that I still have some rough, unfriendly territory to make it through in order to find the end of the book. There's a lot of rough, unfriendly territory in this book. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, a lot of this centers around your relationship with your father. And I think this is a very interesting vision of the of the uh, relationship between American fathers and American sons, which is not Ozzy and Harriet. It, this is a, a much more interesting version. So I'd like you to just, one of the things that we learn early on is that your father, you are your father's son. And I, that, very much so. I, I don't want to be, I, 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 but I am, just, you know, to spite myself. This is a, a classic problem is that as we're growing up, we see our fathers and say, I don't want to be my father's son. And yet that often turns out to be the case. Talk about stepping outside that mold. And my father it was not an introspective guy. And he came home from Vietnam and uh, pretty deeply troubled. I remember when I was, uh, I don't think I was yet in my 20s. I think I was still a teenager. It may have been before I joined the Marine Corps even. My father was proud of the fact that when we lived in Tokyo when I was a kid that one of his commanders one of his commanders must have seen something in my father's behavior erratic behavior I don't know if it was at work or at home and he said uh, hey sergeant Swafford I want you to go see the base psychiatrist and somehow my dad dodged that and he was proud of that he was proud he made a joke of it you know like ah the psych doc tried to get me but I got away from him you know no one ever caught me basically and I remember thinking, that might have been good for your family, Dad, if in 1977 when that commander said, hey, Sergeant Swafford, you know, go see the base dock. But then, of course, uh, you know, I followed in my father's footsteps into the military, off to war. And I came home. And uh, in my 20s, my father decided it was a really bad decision on his part. But he decided for some reason that he would start sharing with me some of his excesses as a young man, some of his infidelities, uh, infidelities that occurred when he was married to my mother. And this was a real intense, uh, a wound. You know, he, he, he wounded me by telling me those things. And, uh, but then I behaved similarly. I wasn't, I wasn't married when I, I was not married when I behaved the way my father did. But I, I suppose uh, some of my behavior could be 
called the behavior of a womanizer. I lied, I deceived, and I did exactly you know, what my father had done, and I didn't want to do that. And and then I and I realized in the middle of my thirties, you know, that I had become him, and and I hated myself for becoming him. And I think I probably sabotaged a couple decent relationships. At the time, did you hate him? I did hate him. Yeah, I hated him too. I, I loved him, but I hated him because of the harm he'd done to me when I was a kid, and also um, just kind of further wounding throughout my my twenties and thirties. I think one reason that I had not settled down and uh, had a family. In fact, I know it. I remember consciously thinking a few times that I that I would never become a father until my own father had died, and that only with his death could I really be my own father, which is, of course, kind of crazy and ludicrous. But for a number of years, I believed it. At one point, when you're talking about your older brother, his wife tells you that it took two kids before he was free of the demons that your father had left him with. Yeah, yeah. And and I could see that. You know, my my brother, my brother's about eight years older than me, but, you know, in my late teens, I saw that he was still quite at war with my father. And it wasn't until his late 20s when his second child, his son, was born that I think he was finally able to completely shift away from the burden of being my father's son. And he felt was able to fall totally into his role as a father. This book, uh, the first uh, voyage that you take with your father in this book with, is with, in an RV to attend a, a graduation. And this is a very you know, intense kind of journey for the reader and for you. When you were embarked on this journey, did you, had you had any thought that this might be something that would be you write about? Not when I jumped off on the first trip. I went into that trip just sort of thinking my father needed a co-driver and not aware at all that in the middle of the night east of Wells, Nevada, that my father would reach out and grab my arm and say, hey, son, let's let's begin. Let's reconcile. We need to clear the air, which was you know the understatement of the decade for my father. I was driving this Winnebago. It's like it's a massive piece of machinery hurtling down the road at 70 miles per hour a real risk to one's uh, life and limb, I have to say, at least with me behind the wheel. It wasn't until that trip, which was kind of a wreck, we didn't wreck the vehicle, but we didn't reconcile that time. We were still at odds. I think I may have even left. The trip was from Fairfield, California to Billings, Montana. And I may have left Billings even angrier with my father. But I did get home to Manhattan, and I and I did start writing about it. And in the mercenary way of, of most writers... It dawned on me that a few more trips with my father in this RV, uh, if the trips were dynamic enough, and if we actually made some progress in healing our relationship, that I might be able to pull off a book about these things. So you saw early on using, in a sense, the drive towards creating a, an end of a written piece of work as a as a means of helping you reconcile with your father. I did. I did. I saw both the trips and and the act of writing as co-devices in finding reconciliation and also allowing me my first book allowed me to do two things, which is finally 
talk kind of openly about having been in the Marines and having gone to combat, which is something that I'd hidden hidden for a while. This is Jarhead. This is Jarhead. I hadn't really talked about it to people, with people. I felt like writing this book about my father would and not just reconcile our relationship, but hopefully kind of heal me. You know, by by the time um, by the time I took the second trip with my father, I was I was living up in the mountains, like I said earlier, and I was dirt broke. I'd blown all my money, all the money that I'd made on my first book. I needed to heal myself too, so I was I was selfishly uh, searching out my father. I felt like if I figured my father out, I could figure myself out. One of the most powerful aspects of this book is this uh, section about the letters you referred to. And, and you called it a, a call and response, and it's kind of a, a tit-for-tat thing. Where you So talk about this letter, getting it and not reading it. Yeah, I received this letter from my father in November of 2006, and I I was it was a Saturday when I happened to check my mail and I'd been out late and I I walked about 20 25 30 blocks home in Manhattan and um was in this messy relationship at the time and was thinking about my girlfriend out being unfaithful to me and this is Ava uh, this is Ava and I opened my mailbox and and there was this big thick envelope and it was from my father you know, I noticed my father's writing on the envelope right away. And I knew right away exactly what it was. I knew that it was probably a handwritten letter from my father outlining for me the various ways in which I'd been a bad son. And I knew this because my older brother had received one of these letters from my father. and But he received his when he was in his 20s. And I, uh, I took that letter upstairs and I threw it in the top drawer of my desk and I, and I didn't read it. Now, you talk about... Uh... Fathers cursing their sons, and I'd like you to just explain, you know, where that reference comes from and and what that means to you. I, you know, I felt that this uh, this letter that that uh, he wrote to me was a real curse. There's a place in the book where he sort of takes me to task for my success, essentially, and and he tells me that he'll see me on my way down, mm-hmm. which I felt was a curse. And I I had recently been reading. Elias Canetti's memoirs, and in his memoirs, um, Canetti's grandfather cursed his father, and very shortly after that, Canetti's father died dead at the kitchen table, at the breakfast table of a heart attack, and he, Canetti writes about that being the worst thing a father can possibly do, is to curse his son, and that it, curses like that haunt families for generations. And so I felt this letter from my father was was a curse. You know, this is a really this chapter is a really great example of your ability to tell a story. Um we get glimpses of your childhood and uh, one incident in particular that seems scarring and I can totally understand how scarring this is and you make this really clear to us is this incident um you're uh required your dad had a list uh, and and he had a, a real list so you had to earn your allowance and there was like a a list of check checklist of what you had to do right yeah we had uh a checklist and it had to happen every day and uh there were you know things uh, brush your teeth, wash the kitchen sink, wash the bathroom sink, vacuum your room, and um, 
you know, when we didn't do those things, we received demerits and uh, you know, our, our allowance, the, the, uh, the ground total on our allowance would suffer. You had to clean up the, the dog uh, poop out of the backyard. And what's interesting is that you knew in reflection that the way you were supposed to do this was based on a, a marine sweeping technique. Yeah, it's it's an uh, something they call policing. Mm-hmm. After say you've shot off rounds at the range, you police the area, which you know means you clean up, you take all of your debris with you. And so one of my tasks every Saturday was cleaning up the the debris that our dogs had left during the week. And uh, my father would always inspect my work afterwards. And uh, this many times I missed some of the dog debris. And uh, this one time in particular, I, I did miss some dog debris, and uh, my father uh, grabbed me pretty violently from the uh, the back of the neck and dragged me across the yard and um, shoved my face, you know, toward this. And uh, there had been this—I'd this, uh, brought that up one time a couple years before when we were arguing on the phone, and, um, you know, my father— wanted to make it clear to me that he didn't that my face never actually touched this dog debris but i say that i don't think it really matters i was my face was shoved you know within inches or perhaps uh you know a few eighths of an inch of this pile of dog debris and that it was um you know the key traumatic moment in my childhood something that i that I was never going to forget because I simply couldn't understand why a man who was uh, at that point probably 35 years old felt like he could, uh, you know, physically handle his seven-year-old child like that. And I feared the man. I, I feared the man greatly. I probably feared him a little bit before that, but I feared him uh, forever after that. And that was something he had trouble understanding. Uh, when you were writing this chapter, this clearly brought back troubling memories, and understandably so. Talk about going back and forth and establishing the two voices, because you have to write, you know, quote from your father's letters, which is troubling for you to see that and even read that again, and then compose your own responses in a manner that, you know, from the perspective of the, of the man who first read the letter, now you're some years on, writing about that man, that diff- who is a different man. Yeah, the the rebuttal process was really quite difficult, and I I didn't when I when I reopened the letter to read it again years later. Um, I didn't at first intend to use it in the book. I I I'd only read it once. I, I read it about uh, three weeks, I think, maybe a little longer after I first received it, and I put it away and I. I swore I would never read it again, and then. But you kept it. But I kept it. I did keep it, and my father, in the opening letter, it's it's uh, six different letters that he handwrites over about six months, and it comprises ten pages, ten handwritten pages. And in the first letter, he says, uh, "Perhaps someday someone will find this, and they will think it means something, but it means nothing." So my father is at once attacking me with his letter, cursing me with his letter, and also trying to pull back from it and say, but all of this that I'm about to say means nothing. 
which which is impossible. It's impossible that once he drops it in the mail, it's impossible that it will ever mean nothing. And 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 the last few sentences are, um, he's contemplating whether or not to send the letter. He's contemplating it on the page, and he says, "Well, now it's I've been working on this letter for too long, and now it's time for me to either throw it away or put it in the mail." And so, sort of nonchalantly, I guess, mail it. It is. As you were talking, I was just thinking about how vivid. Uh, character your father is and you are and this kind of you know a classic American drama with two men who have been to war and come back and and clearly that's not a big help talk about just creating these characters you know on the page as a reading experience for the reader when you yourself are you know one of those characters but who's moved on and also who has this completely different life in terms of being a writer and an academic and college and and you know where you are now yeah i'm always still that uh, i i'm still that 7 year old kid in the backyard with my father i'm still the 12 year old kid i was i'm the 18 year old man i was when i first joined the marine corps those are all versions of me and to write a, a a memoir that that pops on the page and that's that's alive for the reader, uh, it, it requires um, a real clarity in terms of the prose, but also a clarity in terms of character making and meaning, and and character relationships, and the you know, the father son relationship uh, is is you know one of the most primal and one of those that causes uh, many people grief throughout their lives or elation and um mine was you know mostly the latter um and i hope to be you know what you what i grief or elation grief sorry mm-hmm. the former yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh mine was mostly the former and you know i'm a father now and and the biggest you know the the, the goal for me is to 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 be the kind of father so that my daughter someday looks back on our relationship and thinks of it as, uh, you know, more moments of elation. As a father and a writer, you take us to your brother's death. And and this is also a a very troubling and intense story. It's clearly, you know, one of those moments of your life that that has marked you. So I'd like you to, to talk about that because your brother was a lot older than you, so it wasn't like you were exactly buddies. Yeah, my brother was eight years older than me, and uh, he was a hero to me, and I admired him and looked up to him, but we, we weren't pals. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't play together. He, he was that much older than me. Um, but I admired him, and he he became ill with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was uh, 34, and his his death he he died about eleven months later, and it, it obviously uh, ripped a massive hole in my family and and in his family. He had a wife and two children, and my my father um, my father behaved horribly during the year that my brother died. My father only visited him in the final week of my brother's death, and then my father didn't attend the funeral, which I. Uh, which is one of my biggest grievances against my father, and um, because I was I was I 
thought it was a cowardly act, and I was ashamed. I was at my brother's funeral, and my father has a big family. All my aunts and uncles, all my cousins were there, you know, over 100 people. And, and everyone kept asking me, where's your father? Tony, where's your father? Where's John Howard? People couldn't, no one could believe that my father had not attended his own son's funeral. And I was ashamed of this, and I thought it brought great shame you know, to my father and, and to the rest of us. You ask early on, you say, uh, when you with your father and he's really sick, you, you say you feel humiliated by his father's illness, and you felt the same way about your brother's illness. And you ask, is this a moral weakness in me? Yeah, I, I remember being out in Nashville one time with my brother when he was receiving treatment. He was very sick, and uh, people tend to stare at sick people. And we were out at a restaurant, you know, trying to just enjoy a Saturday afternoon. And I remember people staring at my brother because he was ill, and and I and I was kind of ashamed. I, I was ashamed of the attention that it brought, and um, uh. Uh, ironically, I'm a memoirist, but I consider myself a very private person. And and this public sickness, you know, when I was, uh, you know, in my late twenties, uh, was like an opening up of a family wound, and I wasn't prepared to let others see it, and I was sort of ashamed of that. One of the things that uh, happens during when your brother's dying is you're at this point still. Uh, completely womanizing, finding one woman going out with another, and you've you've met a a, a goth girl named Iris. Right. Uh, and, and you do something that just shocks your brother's wife, and it's kind of shocking to the reader too, but that whole scene has that kind of, a, a, a very interesting aspect. I, talk. Could you talk a little bit about doing that? Yeah, I would... Uh... I did have a girlfriend in Sacramento where I was living, but I, over the year that my brother was dying, whenever I visited him, I, I believe five or six times, and there was this girl named Iris who I would see in town. We would uh, drive around West Georgia and listen to the Velvet Underground. And um, my brother, uh, it was it was one of the last nights that I saw him alive, and we'd been talking earlier in the night, and you know, he talked about. Um, you know, the fact that he hadn't had sex for months and and that he wanted to be alive and be a man again and you know part of being a man is having sex and making love to your wife and um I took Iris back to my brother's house that night he was he was on the lower floor in a bedroom in in a sick bed uh in a hospice bed and and um you know on the floor of my brother's room I I made love to this woman Iris and I uh I hoped that my brother saw me or that he knew I was in the room I, it's it t- saying it now it sounds completely bizarre and possibly even kind of sick but um I wanted to be in that room with that woman and I I you know fantasized my brother with this woman rather than me and I say you know um like I think everyone does when they're sitting in a room with a dying sibling or a dying parent. Like, you know, why can't it just be me? You, you don't want to see that loved one die. You you may take a, a second trip with your father. You're you're now living in the Catskills, and I think one of the things that's interesting is that um, you you talk to your father when you're in the Catskills, and and 
open up to him again, and he, he doesn't give you the answer that you expect. And when now that you, you know, essentially lost everything. Yeah, I lived. My father think thought that the letter he wrote me was just him giving me some fatherly advice, and. Uh, <laughs> Didn't think it was a life-changing event for his son. Yeah, he he just thought he was helping me out a little bit, and and I read that as a curse. I mean, I read you know, I'll see you on your way down as a curse. And when I when I finally and I'd been lying to my father. You know, I I told him I didn't tell him that I'd sold my apartment because I was broke. I told him that a friend was running it from me, and I was up in the mountains just escaping the city. Um, but I finally decided that I would just tell him the truth and tell him that. Uh, and by telling him the truth, I thought in a way I was giving him what he wanted, which was to see me on my way down, to see me fail. And you know, he said, "Oh, that's that's never what I wanted. That's that wasn't what I wanted. I just wanted to tell you that you know, money can change people, and to not let it change you." Do you think he really meant that, or do you think that there was a mixture of both in those statements? When he, I think it? I think it's a mixture of both. I, I um. I think my father was ashamed of that letter and and what it meant. I think probably once he dropped it in that post office box in Fairfield, California, he knew what he was doing. He's he's not a dumb guy. He's a smart, complicated guy, and um, you know he knew what he was doing. And I, I think that in that RV, when I finally told him the truth of my you know, financial situation, my distress, and my what I call financial ruin, I think he was you know ashamed to admit that 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 is something that he that he'd written it's interesting when you're in the section about the letter you compliment your own father's uh, rhetoric in in his writing i do i do he's he he ends up being a pretty good writer and and he he wields his pen uh quite efficiently he he knows exactly where to hit me he knows what will damage me and and he knows uh, he knows how to do it with words. And this is an example of the apple not falling too far from the tree, right. Right. <laughs> you know. And I, just as you said that, I kind of realized that in a sense that's what this book is. It's a letter to yourself, and to a degree, it seems like you're trying to uh, maybe hurt yourself with your own words. Yeah, I I. Uh... I think I probably hurt myself a little bit. There's a bit of uh, self-flagellation going on here. I'm also trying to... I'm writing against myself. I'm writing against this behavior and this version of me that I really want to leave behind. I really feel like by the time I'm living on the side of Mount Tremper in upstate New York, that I'm close... I'm either close to the end of my life, I'm mildly suicidal... It's something I'm thinking about a lot. I'm alone a lot. And I'm either very near the end of my life or if I'm lucky, I'm going to choose this other way of living. And you know, I, I call it a, a reverse midlife crisis. And I, and I say, you know, I'd already crashed a sports car. I had slept with a bunch of women and blown through a lot of money. And what I wanted was one woman, one true love, and a station wagon and a couple of kids. It was I was going to do the opposite of what my father had done. And writing this book, 
know, there's a, I'm writing against myself, but I think I'm also writing for myself. And if I've outed myself in terms of this kind of behavior in my history, my past, my father's past, um, and if I move beyond it and, and I find love and I find a family, then you know, there's no way I can screw it up after I've written this book, right? <laughs> so this book is kind of, uh, in a sense, it's your anti-curse uh, to yourself. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way of, of putting it. Um, I'm, I'm pulling myself out of that curse, and I'm pulling myself out of the life, and I'm, I'm putting myself on, on a path toward uh, something that I certainly consider a better, truer, cleaner life that has clarity about what's important and what lasts. In the Catskills, I, where I take it you, you wrote uh, much of this, could you talk about how the 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 landscape there and helped you maybe access these different landscapes? Because one of the things I love about this book is that it's a great picture of America. Not a not a pleasant one, not a pretty one, but it certainly gives an idea of what life in America is like for a lot of Americans. Yeah, I, li- I like that aspect of this. We we are on the road, and and I do think I capture certain regions of America, you know, the regions that we hit, I think I capture them. Uh, Being out of New York City was great for my writing, I have to say. Uh, I I love New York City. I love the city. I love the vibe of the city, the energy. But it's horrible for a writer. It's horrible for this writer. And some older writer friends had warned me. They said, never move to New York. It'll kill you. It'll kill a writer. And, um, of course, I didn't listen to them. And um, and in New York City did very nearly kill me. It's a place where it's easy to not get work done. It's easy to waste time. And when I was sitting in the Catskills every day in this in this beautiful cabin on a lake, uh, near a lake, on a pond, in the woods, deep in the woods, uh, I couldn't help but um, you know be blown away by the natural world and also. Um, then when I was on these trips with my father, be more aware of the natural world. And, and when I was writing it, uh, be more aware of how I was writing it and how I rendered it. You had followed your first memoir with your first novel, Exit A, Mm -hmm. which incorporated a lot of your aspects of your life and fictionalized them. Why did you return to the memoir form here as opposed to continuing to fictionalize your life and are you working on more fiction or more memoir? Or you... Yeah, I um, when when I got back from that first trip with my father, I, I did think that I might. I was working on a novel at the time, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll throw in a father son road trip into this novel. And then I thought, well, that's silly because uh, why don't I just write it? And why don't I call it my story? It is my story. There's no need to fictionalize it. And I've already written a memoir about my time at war, my time in the Marine Corps. And um, this is about what comes after. And it's prose storytelling and it's, um, you know, the the story of my life. And uh, I I wanted to write it. I I needed to write it. And... um, 
that's why it feels like when we read it, it has a lot of urgency. We, we need to read it and find out how it's going to work out. Yeah, I needed to know how it was going to end myself. <laughs> and now, you know, I, uh, I've got a, some pages of a novel that I've been working on for a couple of months, and I'm um, not really sure where it's going, but uh, I don't know that I'll write another memoir. I, uh, you know, I'm a father now, and uh, we have a very young baby. She's nine months old, and, and uh, she's really all I sort of think about. And so I think, okay. Why don't I write a novel about my newborn daughter, or sorry, a memoir about my newborn daughter? And then I think, well, what kind of memoir is that going to be? I had a daughter; she's beautiful. It's great. We have fun. Like, <laughs> no one wants to read that memoir. Um, but I, I, I want to write nonfiction. Uh, I think I want to write nonfiction about other people. I want to find a good story that that excites me, that I think is important, that needs to be told, and and do some reporting on it, and, and uh, write a big kind of nonfiction, write a big nonfiction book about someone else. I've been speaking with Anthony Swafford. His new memoir is Hotels, Hospitals, and Jails. Thank you for joining me, Anthony. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.